Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I have been knee-deep in chess research this week, of all things, inspired by a listener named Brandon, who's an avid chess player. And he wanted a podcast about chess. Anything to do with chess, he didn't really seem too picky about what the exact topic was as long as it was chess-related. Of course, in his email, Bobby Fischer's name did come up, and when you start researching the greatest chess players of all time, all signs do kind of point to him. Even if you don't know anything about chess, you know Bobby Fischer. Exactly. After all, he did become the youngest grandmaster in history at age 15 in 1958, and he's also the first native-born American to hold the title of world champion in 1972. But what really sparked our interest is that chess prodigy that Bobby Fischer was, there was someone else that Fischer himself referred to as the greatest chess genius in history. And that was another American, a New Orleans native named Paul Morphy. Yeah. And like Fischer, Morphy was kind of a child prodigy and he had made his mark on chess at a very early age, a surprisingly early age. And he also completely went against the old ways of playing chess, which is what really made him stand out. And it's what I found really interesting about this subject. But strangely, his illustrious chess career only lasted two years, something that makes him even more amazing that he had such an impact, such an effect in so short a span of time. Yeah, just when he seemed poised to do bigger and better things, he sort of faded into obscurity. So it was kind of strange. Nowadays, only aficionados know much about him, even though in the day he was really well known to people even outside of the chess community. Yeah, the Bobby Fischer of his day. Right. So we want to look into that mystery a little bit. What's the real story behind why more abandoned chess so abruptly, even though he was so well-suited for it, so good at it. And why is he called the pride and sorrow of chess? The title of our podcast. But of course, before we get into all of that, we need to talk about how Paul Morphy got into chess in the first place, because New Orleans is not really known as being the center of the American chess scene, or it certainly wasn't back in 1837, June 22nd, when he was born. And his family wasn't the type that would drive their son into some sort of professional chess career either. His father, Alonzo Morphy, was a successful lawyer, and he served in the Louisiana House of Representatives and later went on to become the state's attorney general and serve on its Supreme Court, while his mother was this prominent member of the New Orleans Creole Society. So his family was very wealthy. They were influential. He seemed more desperate for a career as a lawyer, not a chess player. Yeah, and that's exactly what his family, especially his mother, really wanted him to do. Chess was always kind of in the background of this, though. His father and grandfathers taught Paul how to play, and Paul's uncle, Ernest Morphy, played and was also a pretty well-known chess analyst of the time. But by around age nine, Paul had his own sort of reputation. He had a local reputation as an accomplished player, and by age 12, he was considered New Orleans' strongest player. Yeah, but his greatest feat, or his first great feat, came in 1850. He had just turned 13, and he played a three-game match against the Hungarian chess master Janos J. Lowenthal. And this guy was considered to be one of the best, one of the top 10 players in the world. And this little 13-year-old kid defeated him in all three games. 
games. And it was just an amazing feat for the, the chess world at the time. But between 1850 and 1857, Paul actually took a little break from chess. He went to Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama, and graduated from there with honors at age 17. Then he went on to finally earn that law degree as planned from the University of Louisiana in 1857 at age 20. So he apparently had this amazing memory, which came in handy in studying law, and he could recite the entire Louisiana Civil Code by heart. But unfortunately, he wasn't allowed to take the bar yet and practice law until he came of age. Maybe not so unfortunately. Yeah, well, maybe <laughs> not so unfortunately. But that amazing memory is, remember that part, because it's going to come into play a little later. But in the meantime, while he's waiting to get old enough to actually practice law, he got thrown back into the world of chess. And the first American chess championship tournament was being organized that summer in New York City. And Morphe's friends convinced him, well, you're really good at chess. Maybe you should enter this tournament. Yeah, and at that time, Morphe was pretty much an unknown on the national scene. But that didn't last very long at all because he walked away with first prize in this tournament after finally defeating Lewis Paulson, who was one of America's premier chess players at the time. In the first game of their match, though, Morphy actually lost because of Paulson's extremely slow style of play. Paulson would apparently take up to two hours between moves. Sounds like an agonizing amount of time to wait. Having to wait this long actually frustrated Morphy into making a mistake, but... Fortunately, he came back and he won five games over Paulson to take the championship. Which I think this sort of illustrates even my trouble with chess today. Like, it just takes a really long time between moves. But the idea of two hours, I cannot get over that. But it's a good point to to stop a little and talk about Morphe's style of play. Because we mentioned it in the introduction that he did sort of put a new spin on the game and the game was quite old, though, so putting a new spin on it in the 1800s was a pretty revolutionary thing to do. Yeah, the game had been around since the 6th century A.D., and if you need a little background on this, we actually have an article on our website called House Chess Works, and it will it give even you... has illustrations. It does, and it can teach you the rules of the game and also give you some of this history that we're going to give you right now. So it started way back then in India and gradually spread to the rest of Asia, the Middle East, and to Europe. The rules and the playing style, however, developed really slowly. They experienced the most growth over the last couple of centuries, actually. And around the time of our story, competitors would still display a lot of reserve and deliberation during games, sometimes two hours worth. And they fought really for every chess piece. Yeah. And Morphy took a different approach. He didn't fight for every piece. He was willing to sacrifice some. He played quickly and often he made unconventional sacrifices. So it would seem like he was starting out badly and then he would suddenly recover. And just to give you an idea of a few of his tactics, if you even have a basic understanding of chess, this will resonate. So he would often give up his center pawn and then develop the stronger pieces. So put each chessman at its best advantage instead of bringing those into play later in the game, playing with the pawns first and trying to keep them all around. As many people did at the time. Yeah, but he avoided premature attacks. So just because he's trying to bring the stronger pieces into the game earlier doesn't mean he's 
being reckless with them once they are in the game. Right. And he never took more than 12 minutes to ponder a move. So I think you would have preferred watching him. For him as a chess partner, perhaps. Yeah. So these strategies may not seem so radical today, but at the time they really threw Morphe's opponents off their game. So he not only won this national championship, he then went on to play 97 unofficial games with his competitors and he won 85 of them, which is truly remarkable. And at, at that point, he's considered America's best. Yeah. So his supporters started thinking, well, what is the next move he can make? And Morphe thought this himself, started thinking, well, if he's America's best, then it's time to take on the best in the world. And so he sent a challenge to England's Howard Staunton, who proved to be kind of an interesting character himself. He was. At the time, there wasn't really an official world chess championship, but Staunton was considered the best because he had beaten the French champion. He also wrote a regular chess column for the Illustrated London News, and he had created this chess player's handbook that he had published. Another kind of unrelated and chess-related side note, he was also a Shakespearean scholar, and that was kind of his excuse for not taking Morphe's challenge to come to America and face him. He had a gig annotating Shakespeare plays at the time, so he was a little busy, but he did say hey, if you come over here instead, then I might play you. So Morphy hopped on a ship in June 1858 and went to Europe. Yeah, but once he was there, Staunton wasn't willing to play. This kind of reminded me, if you've ever seen that documentary King of Kong, there's a lot of drama in this, people refusing to play. But to really make things worse, Staunton didn't just refuse to play or, or sort of dodge the challenge. He also badmouthed Morphy in his chess column, saying that Morphy was only interested in winning money. And this really, really offended Morphe because he had always said that he just played chess for the enjoyment of the game. He didn't see it as a profession. He had a profession. This was not it. Yeah. So he waited around for Staunton in England for three months and then finally moved on to Paris. He was really disappointed, not just because of the insults, because he really actually wanted to play Staunton. But He left August 31st, and he stayed in Paris for six months after that, taking on several distinguished chess players there. And it's there that he really got to display those awesome memory capabilities that we mentioned back in his school days. He became the first chess player at this time to put on blindfolded exhibitions. So late that September, he took on eight opponents simultaneously. He would sit on a chair with his back to the chess boards, and he called out his moves in order, speaking in French at the time. He was fluent in French. And he would make instantaneous responses when his opponent's moves were announced. So... Again, just an amazing feat of memory. He had to not only remember the moves he made, but also remember all the moves that all eight of his opponents had made and visualize everything on the board. Yeah, juggle all these games at the same time. Yeah, it took more than 10 hours, mostly, interestingly enough, because of his opponents taking so long to make their decisions, not him. And he won six of these games and he drew two of them. So... Again, just an amazing example of his analytical skills, his memory skills, and it made him something of a hero in Paris. I would imagine. A celebrity. Pretty impressive display. But the most notable matchup that occurred while he was in Paris was, was not one of these blindfolded displays. It was a match against Carl Ernest Adolf Anderson, who was considered Europe's best chess player. And Morphy had the flu when he was supposed to play Anderson, and he was getting the common treatment at the time, which sounds like it would make matters a lot worse. Leeches were sucking out four pints of his blood. He was laid up in bed, but he still played Anderson in his hotel and won seven games to two. So pretty remarkable. He, I guess 
he didn't feel lightheaded enough to to have any confusion. Yeah, apparently he was able to stay clear-headed enough to win this match and convince people, as you might imagine, that he was the best player in the world. By the time he left for America again in April 1859, that's what he was considered. Even by non-chess players, like people like Oliver Wendell Holmes, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Samuel F.B. Morse, who invented the telegraph, even President Van Buren's son, John, all these people celebrated him and honored him as the chess champion of the world. Yeah. So the New York Ledger asked him, well, why don't you write your own chess column? But his stint there only lasted about six months. And by December 1859, he was back to New Orleans. And then the real shocker came. Early 1860, he announced that he would never play chess competitively for money again. And at the same time, though, he issued this challenge that he would meet any player in the world at any time and give the other player the odds of pawn and move, which means that he would remove one of his pawns from play at the start of the game. And then he'd also give his opponent the white pieces, which always get the first move. So... This remarkable retirement and challenge issued at the exact same time. Yeah, no one ever took him up on that challenge, though. So he really never played chess officially, competitively again. He only played casual games with friends and acquaintances after that. He tried to establish a law practice since that was his chosen career, but he never really had any success with it, possibly because of the Civil War starting or his lack of participation in the Civil War was another thing. He decided not to fight in the Civil War, and a lot of people in his native New Orleans didn't like that very much, um, so they didn't really want to become his clients. Well, and then there was just the issue of his being a famous chess player, which... Maybe that wasn't what people were looking for in their lawyer at the time. Yeah, and I think you also get maybe people are just walking through your door because you are this They want to play chess with you. (laughs) So he spent the war years in Havana and in Paris with his mother and his sister, but eventually returned and lived the rest of his life in New Orleans in his family home on Royal Street, which if you have ever been to New Orleans or know anything about it, it's the building where Brennan's restaurant is now located. And he eventually died there of a stroke while taking a bath July 10th, 1884. So that leaves us with a question, though. Why did he give up chess so so suddenly? What happened? I mean, it it surely wasn't just so he could devote himself fully to his legal career. There are a few theories out there about why he left the game. Yeah, one is that Morphy was deeply hurt by Staunton's insults and refusal to play him, and that affected him so much that he wanted to give up the game. Another theory suggests that it involves his failed law practice somehow. And still other people think that he gave up chess in pursuit of a woman who wasn't interested in being with, quote, a mere chess player. Uh-oh. <laughs> but today, a lot of experts think that maybe mental illness, specifically paranoia, had some part in this abrupt quitting of chess. And there's no concrete evidence, just recollections of his behavior. But his behavior does start to seem kind of strange. His attitude started changing by the time he got back from Europe, and he was just increasingly moody. And then later in life, he thought that people were out to get him. He would take these long walks along Canal Street and sometimes forget who he was entirely and ask people to lend him money, up up to $200 worth of money. And his paranoia might have made him partly shunned by society, and he himself stayed secluded from his friends. So he seemed like a different man. Yeah, but the main thing that his paranoia seemed to hone in on, seemed to focus on, was 
chess. By the early 70s, he started to develop these ideas that he didn't want to be associated with the game. He basically refused to be whenever anyone wanted to sort of name him an association or interview him for something as the world's best chess player. He kind of wanted to shrug that identity off. He didn't want to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Ironically, though, it's exactly for that reason that he's remembered. It's for the game of chess. People still study his games. Late chess master Fred Reinfield put it like this. Morphy was the memorable genius who wrenched chess out of the rut in which it had sluggishly dawdled for a thousand years. So it's why he's still admired. Yeah, I think you mentioned to me earlier that people still leave chess pieces on his grave. Yeah, people visit his grave and they leave chess pieces there. And, you know, I've I've read, you know, different pieces of research and blogs about this. And some people wonder, what would he think of that? Since he wanted to not be identified as a chess player, what would he think of? I'd rather have the legal code on his grave. And there are some obvious parallels here to Bobby Fischer, who we talked about in the introduction to this podcast. He's also thought to have been paranoid. Um, And actually, there was a story in Time magazine from 2005 by Charles Krauthammer. And he was kind of exploring that connection between madness and genius and chess. Does it make you crazy? Well, and, you and that we, question out there. we can one up that question. Too. We really can. Well, we can say we don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if anyone truly does. Yeah. I mean, it does seem kind of coincidental that there that connection comes up a lot. But what we do know is that chess will not make your head explode. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. And if you're wondering why we were bringing this crazy thing up, I, when I was researching this week, Julie Douglas from Stuff to Blow Your Mind mentioned, she was like, <laughs> oh, well, did you know that there was this urban legend a few years ago that a chess player's head exploded? And sure enough, there was a 1994 story in the Weekly World News that a chess player's head had exploded during a match because of a rare electrical imbalance. Luckily, though, Snopes.com... <laughs> dispelled the smith and they said that no that does not happen although you know i think that if i had to wait two hours for my opponent my head might implode while i was sitting there just out of boredom (laughs) yeah you might want to bring a book or something with you but don't think too hard because snopes had this little excerpt from kind of an internet rendition of the myth and one of the quotes from it that was my favorite was Doctors urge people to take it easy and not think too much for long periods of time. <laughs> so don't listen to too many podcasts in a row. Don't I do it. So in order to not make you guys think anymore, we're going to end our discussion of chess <laughs> right there for your own safety. <laughs> but we will encourage you guys to write to us. Um, you can reach us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or you can look us up on Twitter at Mist in History or on Facebook. Yeah, and if you want to learn a little bit more about chess, we do have that article that we mentioned, How Chess Works. You can find it on our homepage by searching for chess at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>